people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. We're live from CPAC this year, uh, just outside of Washington, D.C., outside the Beltway, having a lot of fun. This is my uh, my second year here at CPAC. It's going really, really well. It's presidential election year, of course, so you have to take into consideration some of the stuff that's going on, and we've had several other presidential candidates come by, and I got to tell you, security went through the roof. My goodness. Thank goodness Radio America got me media passes, so uh, I, I'm perceived as a, an important, influential part of the media. But had it not been for that, I think I'd still be in line waiting to get through the metal detectors and the pat-downs and that kind of stuff. But overall, I, it, it's been extraordinary. I think I said last year, some of the observations were very encouraging. About 50% or so of the people that attend are college kids. So, you know, college kids drive me nuts. There's no question about that. I'm not a kid person. If I like kids, I'd had them, and I don't. But it is encouraging to see these young people engaged in conservative principles engaged in politics. When I was in college, it was tennis and girls, not necessarily in that order. So uh, to, to see young people today fully engaged, to be knowledgeable, communicate well on conservative politics warms the heart a little bit. But CPAC has, has been very interesting. Definitely coming back next year. Uh, Radio America is terrific on the national syndication. They're well-respected here and very, very happy being a part of their organization for an Economy One. Some of the guests we've talked to, uh, you're going to hear a couple of them tonight. Uh, You're going to hear Ambassador John Bolton. Ambassador John Bolton talked to us, uh, came by the booth. We spent, I don't know, seven, eight minutes together. He's a very, very busy guy, but uh, very gracious and brilliant. Just brilliant. I mean, he's one of those guys that you'd love to be able to sit down with for a couple hours and just pick his brain, not only about his experiences and history, but about world affairs. The guy is so knowledgeable. But John Bolton will be coming up a little bit later in the show. And, of course, one of my favorite economists of all time, Gordon Chang, is joining us uh, today on the show. Spent uh, 20 years or so over in Hong Kong studying the economics over there and he's very knowledgeable and it it was just fascinating in the past hearing his insights on China and what uh, he thinks is going to happen to that country going forward and and it's uh, not real positive from the stuff I've read so looking forward to chatting with him uh, a little bit later in the show also about China their economy and what effect 
it would have on our economy. Of course, there's a lot of talk around here, a lot of people chatting about uh, the Supreme Court nomination. As you know, uh, Justice Scalia passed away a few weeks ago and became a real political football talking about President Obama putting forth a nominee and the Senate having hearings and voting on that nominee. And uh, the Senate leader, Mitch McConnell, came out and said, there's no way we're going to vote on any nominee that President Obama puts forward, which I'm not sure I, I agree with that statement. I understand why uh, O'Connell did that, but I don't necessarily agree with the politics of it. I think it would have been better if the Republicans would have simply kept their mouth shut and when President Obama puts forth a nominee, determine whether you want to have hearings and, and talk about that nominee or not. You can delay it forever after he makes a nominee, but to come out and challenge him like that, that that's just putting a chip on your shoulder and daring him to knock it off. And uh, President Obama is one of those people that I think has no problem knocking that chip off and, and stepping over the line in the sand. So uh, I, I don't politically agree with that, but oddly enough, I know it's hard to believe, but Mitchell kind of did not call me up and ask me my opinion beforehand. I, I think he should have, but apparently I'm, uh, I'm not in his Rolodex for uh, garnering a, a opinion. But we did talk to several people about the death of Justice Scalia and what their thoughts were on replacing him and how important the next election is. We're going to have Ken Blackwell within the next couple of weeks on the show, and we talked to him about that very subject, and he made the statement that he feels the people should have a voice in determining the next Supreme Court justice. And I uh, had a beautiful answer for the question because I asked him, I said, well, what if the people choose the wrong president? And uh, we get uh, somebody left of President Obama as our next president. And they're going to be the ones not only choosing the replacement for Scalia, but potentially the replacement of two or three others that, that might retire in the next uh, presidential election cycle or so. And uh, very quickly, without hesitation, he said, hey, if the people choose, the people choose. So I, I thought that was a decent answer. But when you're set up in, in Radio Row here at uh, CPAC, it's, it's fascinating. A lot of people have PR, public relations people, that they go from uh, radio show to radio show and solicit the radio show for some time for their candidate or their person that they're representing, be it an author or a speaker or, or whatever. And we had somebody come by, a PR person, and talk to us about somebody they were representing. And we was taking down all the information, and his last name was Scalia. So we asked him if... He was any relation, and very quietly he said, yes, he was my dad. Anthony Scalia's son was working at CPAC. What are the odds of running into him here at CPAC? So I, I sat down and chatted with him for a, a little while, off record, of course. I didn't want to shove a microphone in front of his face and, and uh, put him on the spot. But very nice man, very gracious and terrific insights 
into what it was like to have a man like Justice Scalia as his father. So it's been a very, very interesting time here at CPAC. I would encourage all of you that can to attend future programs. It's an experience, let me tell you. But unlike some of the other things I have attended, there's no negative aspect to this. People weren't shouting people down. They weren't carrying negative sign. There's no protesters outside the hotel. We're at the Gaylord Convention Center here outside of Washington, D.C., and it's a beautiful facility, but very positive being here. I don't feel any anxiety at all. I've been invited to the Republican National Convention this summer in Cleveland, and I'm somewhat hesitant. One, because I'm more economics and political, even though CPAC is probably a little bit more political than economic. A lot of their guests, a lot of their speakers revolve around economics, so it's easy to be here and talk to people. And the Republican National Convention, I I don't think that will so much be the case. But you know there's going to be protesters all over, people getting in your face. I I just, that's just not me. I'm just not going to subject myself to that. I would rather observe from afar and not get in uh, too much of a confrontational attitude. My uh, Radio America booth here is right beside the blaze. And I've already had some interesting discussions with some of their personalities, security people. We won't name names, but it's been an interesting dynamic being uh, 10 feet away from uh, the blaze and their operation. So, uh, but it's been a lot of fun here at CPAC. We've met a lot of great people. We're going to have a lot of interviews that we've recorded and uh, we'll broadcast those uh, over the uh, coming weeks and uh, see what you think of them. And all of them will be posted on our website and on uh, Facebook, of course, so you can uh, see everything and download all the uh, research and articles and columns that uh, the people we've talked to uh, have have written and and put out there. Um, Coming up next, Ambassador John Bolton. Uh, He's a good guy. We had a lot of fun together. We're going to talk to Ambassador John Bolton next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Ambassador John R. Bolton. He's a diplomat and a lawyer, spent many years in public service. In fact, from August 2005 to December 2006, he served as the U.S. Permanent Representative to the United Nations. From 2001 to 05, he was the Undersecretary of State for Arms Control and International Security, and at AEI, He's Ambassador Bolton's area of research is U.S. foreign and national security policy. Ambassador, thanks for joining me today. Uh, in the time we have, I just want to ask you a few questions. Uh, everybody, you know, we're deep into the presidential uh, primaries and choosing candidates. In your opinion, uh, with your background, what do you think the biggest international issue is going to be for the next president? Well, I think the next president will face a variety of specific challenges, but the overall problem 
uh, is that for seven years, uh, Barack Obama has set about destroying the positions of strength that the U.S. has had for decades and which has deterred and dissuaded uh, potential adversaries from moving against our interests or those of our friends and allies. So whether it's uh, dealing with Vladimir Putin in Eastern and Central Europe, dealing with the spreading chaos across the Middle East, dealing with China in East Asia, uh, dealing with the threat of international terrorism, the North Korean and Iranian nuclear weapons program, it, it's a very long list. Uh, it, they, they find a common denominator in the lack of American strength and resolve and capabilities, unfortunately, that we've seen during the Obama administration. And that has to be changed. It has to be reversed quickly, uh, politically. It's going to take longer to reverse it in terms of our military capabilities. There's some things that can't be reversed that we're going to have to find workarounds to uh, get back to the place we want to be. It's going to consume a lot of time and attention for the new administration, even at a time of economic uh, difficulties here. But if we don't face up to these issues right at the front end, uh, I'm afraid we're going to lose the opportunity. Now, when you say that, we got to reestablish our strength and that kind of stuff. Uh, what do you mean? I mean, is it is it manpower? Is it Material well, Is it our both, presence yeah, around the world? It, it's both political and military. Certainly we've got a Navy uh, that's in decline. It has a ship level at sea equal to the Navy in World War I. Uh, the, right. the president's last uh, uh, budget proposal for his last fiscal year in office projected an Army force level equal to what it was in 1938, not a very good year. Uh, we know that in the Air Force uh, we're way behind in uh, construction of advanced uh, fighter and bomber planes. Uh, you, you can just go down the list. While domestic spending under Obama has gone through the roof, uh, the aggregate cuts in military spending approach roughly uh, $1.5 trillion below the Bush baseline level. That's X the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. In other words, taking them out of the comparison. So I think, uh, obviously, we're all concerned about reducing the deficit uh, annually, reducing the national debt, uh, which means we're going to have to make some even more difficult cuts in domestic spending, which I would favor in any event, right, but which right. we, we're going to need to do to provide room for the increases in, in defense spending. Now, you know, it, hardly a day goes by where we don't see Russia uh, flexing its, its power a little bit. Uh, obviously, Putin is is a masterful chess player and he's taking advantage of, of some of our moves. Where do you see Russia going uh, in the near future and is there anything we can do to, to counter some of those moves? Well look, uh, we've seen the Russians build an air base in Latakia in Syria just in the past several months to help the Assad regime. This marks a return of a Russian military presence in the Middle East we haven't seen since the 1970s when Assad expelled the Soviet advisors and brought Egypt uh, into the Western orbit, peace with Israel. Uh, we've seen Putin use military force on the continent of Europe to change international boundaries, something we said in 1945 we were never going to permit again. I think sometime before the end of the Obama administration, having seen the weakness of U.S. and NATO responses, uh, that Putin may try and create a provocation in one of the Baltic republics, Estonia, Latvia, or Lithuania, to see what he can get. Remember, these are NATO countries now, so mm -hmm. a failure to defend them adequately uh, could have a shattering impact on the NATO alliance. I'm not saying Putin wants military action, but he wants to see how far he can get uh, uh, with a weak uh, president. So uh, the, these are things that, uh, that go to the core of how you see America's role in the world. Do you see us as a force for 
uh, strength and peace in the world, or do you think we're the problem? I think Obama thinks that, in major respects, we're the problem and that a, uh, a less uh, visible United States would lead to a more peaceful world. I think that's like looking at the world through, a, through, through the back end of a telescope. That being said, I mean, it, it almost seems like, of course, the Middle East has been in turmoil forever uh, in, in one form or another. Uh, is, is Russia in there uh, stirring the pot? And once again, he's a masterful chess player. Is he getting other people to, to fight each other that, that Russia will benefit from? Well, what you've got now is an alliance between Russia and Iran and Iran's surrogates, certainly in the Syria conflict, but, but more broadly as well, and, and including on economic matters like oil and gas production, which have such a critical impact on the world's economy. Uh, Putin has exploited the absence of American will and resolve, uh, and he's going to continue to do that until we stand up to him. Uh, it serves a lot of purposes. Uh, but I think actually there are areas where we could cooperate with Putin. I think you increase uh, on international terrorism, for example. I think you increase the likelihood of cooperation on some issues by standing up to him on others. If he thinks we're weak when we're on the other side of him, he's going to think we're weak when we're on his side. Too. Sure. <clears throat> we got just a few seconds left. I want to just run real quick analysis, our relationship with Cuba. Uh, President Obama has changed that. Good thing, bad thing. Well, I think it's a bad thing for the United States. It's a worse thing for the people of Cuba. You know, despite the president's rhetoric that he wouldn't uh, confer legitimacy by recognizing Castro, he wouldn't relieve the trade sanctions, he wouldn't go there himself uh, unless there were significant strides in the protection of human rights for the Cuban people in Cuba. Mm -hmm. There's been none of that. And the evidence is exactly to the contrary. While some people have been released from prison, more people have been arrested. So the prisons right. are fuller now than they were before this deal. This is a classic example of how not to negotiate with an adversary. I'm very worried to come back to Gitmo that uh, not only does he want to release uh, the prisoners we have there now, he wants to give the entire base back to Cuba, which would be another catastrophe for America, something Congress needs to work on and prevent from happening by law. <clears throat> We've been speaking with Ambassador John Bolton. Like you said, I know everybody's tugging at your sleeve. I really appreciate your time this morning. Look forward to talking to you again soon. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. We're live here at CPAC. Coming up next, we're going to speak with Gordon Chang. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Gordon Chang. He's a columnist of the Daily Beast and a contributor at Forbes.com. He also blogs at World Affairs Journal. He's the author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World, released by Random House in January 2006. Uh, he's appeared on CNN, Fox News Channel, Fox Business Network, everywhere. He's appeared on uh, The Daily Show with Jon Stewart and is a regular co-host and guest on The John Bachelor Show. Gordon, welcome to An Economy of One. Thank you so much. I uh, appreciate you joining me. It's good to meet you in person. We've talked a couple of times. Yeah. And, uh, of course, we, we spend a lot of time talking about China. When it comes to the economy, a day doesn't go by that no matter what movement happens in the stock market, no matter what movement happens in a lot of the commodity sectors, China's name comes up. 
And one of the things you said to me a long time ago, well, not that long ago, but we was talking about China currency being included in SDRs uh, at the International Monetary Fund. We kind of ended the segment with you saying, well, that doesn't really bother me. I think China will default anyway. And uh, that was kind of a cliffhanger for us. A lot has happened in China since we last talked. Give us kind of an update of what's going on in their economy and their monetary system. Yeah, the Chinese currency, the renminbi, is really precarious right now. You know, a lot of people talk about Beijing manipulating its currency, and that's true. It is. But in the past, it was manipulating it to keep it at an artificially low level. Today, the Chinese are manipulating manipulating it to keep it at an artificially high level. And the reason is is that there's a lack of confidence in the currency. And if they let the currency float to its real value, which would be much lower than it is today, then even more money would come out of China. Last year, according to Bloomberg, there was $1 trillion of net capital outflow. So, you know, you can see the dimensions of the problem. The Chinese right now are desperately trying to keep their value, uh, their currency from plummeting. Let's talk about that for a second. The capital outflows. I mean, we've talked about other countries and other situations having capital controls. What do you mean when capital is leaving China? Is physical money actually leaving the country and going to Hong Kong or other countries, or are they investing it in things outside of China? Well, a couple of things are occurring. So first of all, um, Chinese companies, um, because the dollar is generally strengthening, are taking their dollar obligations, they're paying them off, and they are then borrowing in renminbi, the local currency. So that is considered to be part of the outflow. But much of the outflow is Chinese businesses investing abroad because they don't have confidence in their own country. And in some cases, it's people just taking currency out and depositing it elsewhere because they're worried about what's going on in China. There's a couple things. First of all, People are just trying to make sure that they do not get caught in the rush to the exits on the renminbi. But they're also concerned about the Chinese political system and the stability of the country. So they want their money out. They want it in foreign currency. And that's exactly what they're doing right now. So there's a lot of money that's coming out of China. According to the People's Bank of China, which is a central bank, um, they are spending it about $100 billion a month in defending their currency. I actually think it's greater than that, but whatever the amount is, it's just unprecedented. You know, that's a huge amount of money to support the currency. Is that activity a major factor or even a factor in the strength of the dollar on the international market? Uh, it's part of it, but I think it's it's not that important. I mean, the dollar is strong right now in general because people are concerned about the rest of the world. You know, you look around, you know, we've got a lot of economic problems here. But they're nothing in comparison to what the Chinese have, of course, but also in Europe. Europe is a disaster, um, especially with the possibility of Britain leaving the, uh, the EU. Um, there are so many issues around the rest of the world, so people like the dollar. You know, and I, I've said that to a lot of people that, you know, regardless of how you feel about our politicians, our country politically one of the most stable in the world, and, and well, people have confidence in our dollar from our stability standpoint and our military standpoint. Well, you know, people say that we have a dysfunctional political system, and I think that that's actually wrong. What we have is a divided electorate, and because we have a divided electorate, we have divided politics. 
I mean, that's just natural. Our political system is working the way it should. It's reflecting what people think. Now, I would prefer that we do not have the symptoms of disunity or disorganization in Washington, but that's just the way this, our country is at the moment. And until one half of the country convinces the other half, this is going to continue. Uh, at the very least, we can have discussions in Washington, have people shaking their fists at each other and spitting nails. Nobody gets killed and thrown in jail or anything like that in this country. You know, so. absolutely. And that's exactly what's happening in China, where you have unprecedented prosecutions. You know, Xi Jinping, the ruler of China, says this is a, an anti-corruption campaign. Well, no, it's not. Because he's not jailing his political supporters, he's not jailing his friends, but the people who he is jailing are anti-corruption campaigners. So this is a political purge, it's continuing, and it's causing um, this a number of things, not only the symptoms of disorganization we see in Beijing, but also this money coming out of China, and people leaving China. Yeah, you know, that's something we haven't talked about in the past, is the amount of people leaving and going to America or other countries, that kind of stuff. What do you see ultimately for China? I mean, they, they came out and said their GDP was growing. I think the last number I saw was 68 6.9%. 6.9% yeah. uh, for the year, 6.8% for fourth quarter 2015. You know, from talking to you and a lot of the stuff I've read, uh, that's probably not very accurate. You know, it, it, it's, it's probably a little bit less than that or it, a lot less than that. There's a consensus forming around 4%. Um, Conference Board said 3.7% for last year. Capital Economics in London said 4.3%. I believe it's actually one or two um, because we start looking at some of the underlying indicators, including price data and including electricity consumption. But the point is, it doesn't matter almost what China is growing at. We know that the growth rate is coming down. It's coming down fast. And Chinese leaders can't stop the downward trajectory which means that eventually, if it's not 1% today, it's going to be 1% in a quarter or two from now. And the thing is, Chinese leaders have an enormous amount of debt that they've got to pay back, perhaps 350% of gross domestic product, which is what George Soros said in January in Davos. You know, Or maybe it's 400%, as a research firm in Hong Kong said a couple of weeks ago. But it's a lot of money. What do you see... I mean, what do you see ultimately happening, and how does that affect the United States? I mean, they're, they're a big trading partner for us. I mean, we, just about everything you see is made in China anymore. And what, what do you see happening maybe in the next five years to that economy, and, and how does it affect our economy? Well, there's going to be an adjustment in China. And the only question is, is it going to be slow or is it going to be sharp and sudden? You know, it could be what the Japanese did, had two lost decades of recession or recession-like stagnation. Uh, that's the best-case scenario for China. I think it's more likely you have a 1929-style adjustment. Um, and, of course, um, because people here are not expecting it, it is going to shock our markets. It's going to shock markets around the world. But China right now is basically on a one-way ticket down. And we can argue about how long it takes, because it could take longer than I think. Mm-hmm. But And we can argue about the way the adjustment occurs, but it's occurring because the Chinese political system will not allow the economic change that must occur to avoid this crash of some sort. Now, will that take Hong Kong with it? I mean, Hong Kong has been one of those economies that a lot of people look at, including myself, as you know, kind of the one of the freest markets out there in the past, and it's kind of the the poster child for capitalism. China owns Hong Kong now. Hong Kong go down with them? Yeah, probably Hong Kong goes down with it because 
Hong Kong economy has always been tied to China one way or the other. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, people are not going to go to China, therefore they're not going to go to Hong Kong. Um, but, you know, Hong Kong is still small. I mean, it, right. but the effect on the global economy, probably, you know, apart from the shock in the financial markets, which will be big, um, uh, apart from that, though, you know, the world's going to get along fine without China because, um, you know, we're buying a lot of our stuff from Vietnam, Bangladesh. Uh, anyway, we're just going to buy more of it. And, and more of the stuff's going to be manufactured back here. Mm -hmm. They're already starting to see that trend of manufacturers <laughs> starting to relocate back into the U.S. for a number of reasons. Well, that trend is going to accelerate, and that's going to be a good thing for us. So, yeah, there's positives and negatives, um, but we're going to do just fine. we got a great economy. It's the best in the world in many respects. Maybe not the fastest growing, certainly not. But nonetheless, it is a strong, resilient economy that will do well in all sorts of conditions, even the failure of the Chinese economy. You know, that's a, a terrific positive note to end on because very few people come on the show that are experts like yourself and say, we got a great economy, we got a great country, we're going to be fine. So. You know, if you look at the day-to-day -to -day headlines, yeah, you worry. But you got to remember, we do not live in isolation. We live in a world. And you look around the rest of the world and you say, oh, my God. <laughs> well, you know, the phrase I've used often is, we're the cleanest dirty shirt in the laundry. Absolutely. So, so uh, once again, thank you so much for your time. It was great talking to you. Uh, I've enjoyed talking to you in the past. And uh, hope we can talk to you again real soon. Uh, thank you. I really would appreciate that. Coming up next, some final thoughts of my experience here live at CPEC. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, it, I was fortunate, I guess, that I was at CPAC in one sense because it was easy to avoid the Republican debate that took place this last week in Detroit. I don't know about you. I, I think I've told you this before. I'm getting sick of this crap. I, I made the comment the other day that it's fascinating to watch Hillary do nothing. And she's very, very smart politically. And the old Sun Tzu art of war says, never attack an enemy who's busy committing suicide. And you look at the Republican Party and they're committing suicide. And I think I mentioned a week or so ago why I think there's so much oh, established GOP dislike of Donald Trump. And I think in my mind, I, my thought process is that it's because this is the first time in a century probably that any Republican, just about any Republican, could beat Hillary. This is a dream Democratic nominee ticket. You got Bernie Sanders, a devout, confessed socialist, and you got former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. I'm not a politician. I don't have a desire to be a politician. With enough money, I think I could beat Hillary in this race. So I, I think what's happening is you have career politicians looking at the potential Democratic ticket and saying, oh, here's my chance. This is the chance I've been waiting my whole career for. I, I want to be president. Every politician, every congressperson wants to be president. 
and a few of them said, this is my shot. It'll never get any easier than this. She gets in, she'll be in for four or possibly eight years. I don't want to eight, wait another four, eight years. So uh, now's my shot. And then along comes Donald Trump. Donald Trump's not a member of the fraternity. He's not a politician in the sense that all the rest of them are. And he is saying what a lot of individual American voters are thinking. So I think that the Republican establishment, like the Jeb Bushes of the world, the Marco Rubios of the world, the all of them, are looking at this and saying, son of a gun, he's messing it up. Now I, I can't be elected president against the easiest Democratic ticket in 100 years. And I think that's why they're going after Trump so hard. I don't think it's because of policy. I don't think it's even because of his arrogance or anything else. you got to have some of those qualities to run for president. And, you know, there, there's no question that he's got his, his own style. <laughs> you got to admit that. But it, it's not conventional in the career politician's thought process. So anyway, they had another debate. And I didn't watch it. I couldn't watch it. I'm sorry. I mean, I'm, I'm in my hotel room here at CPAC and couldn't do it. I tried, honestly tried. But I can't stand two people talking over each other, trying to be the voice. I can't stand the way the questions are loaded. They're not true journalistic questions in my mind. And I, I, I just, I'm tired of this kind of show. It's strictly kabuki theater. It's meaningless, and I can't have that going into my brain at all. And fortunately, once again, here at CPAC, I haven't, I haven't come across a lot of stuff that is, is brain-numbing. I'm very close with the Heritage Foundation, with Cato Institute, uh, with a lot of the organizations here that, that do some really good work. And, uh, of course, the Mercatus Center and George Mason University, I mean, it's... I get to see all the people that we talk to through the year, and it's very, very positive. But I can't watch debate stuff. I, I just can't watch it. On a different note, you know, we've talked about the global warming stuff and, and the EPA, and, and we've got some interviews coming up that we recorded talking about EPA policy and putting themselves in charge of anybody's private property and if there's any amount of moisture on that land they want to regulate it and be in charge of it and, and it won't be long before you'll have to get a federal EPA permit to do virtually anything on your own property and this is what we got to fight against you know I didn't realize it until I did a little research that the EPA was created by executive order by executive order anybody want to guess which president signed an executive order creating the EPA. I'll give you a second. Ah, you're wrong. It was President Richard Nixon back in 1971. 1971, he signed an executive order creating the Environmental Protection Agency, and every year since then, it has become more and more intrusive and disrespectful of private property. Now, this is near and dear to my heart because I live out in the country on 60-some acres, 
and I have a creek on my property. I have an orchard on my property. I have a vineyard that we just planted, a few hundred grapevines, and I use chemicals. If you're going to have an orchard today or a vineyard today, you got to stay on top of the diseases and the fungi and, and all that kind of stuff. I can just see some busybody coming along and sticking their nose in my business because my creek eventually runs into the ocean if you follow it long enough. And uh, that's what the EPA is doing now. Now, Before, the regulatory authority stopped at navigable waters. Navigable. And now they've expanded that to regulate anything that drains off, leaches into, or flows to navigable waters. So that's everything. So going forward, you're going to have to have a permit to do anything. You'll have to have a permit to put a pond on your own property. And, uh, of course, they're going to regulate everything that happens on your property because everything leaches into the ground and uh, becomes part of that flow into navigable waters. But the fact is that the EPA is way overreaching itself in a huge private property land grab. And if we don't do something to stop it, if the next president isn't willing to stop it, then we're going to have some big problems. So if I were to talk to the next president or presidential candidates, my question would be, are you willing, when you first get into office, to negate all previous executive orders with an executive order? That can be done. All executive orders can be undone by simply issuing an executive order to undo it. You don't have to go through Congress. You don't have to go through the court system. So I would like to see that 1971 EPA creating executive order by Richard Nixon negated. I'd like to see President Obama's executive orders about employer mandates on Obamacare, about uh, mental health issues when it comes to purchasing a gun or getting background checks when it comes to the so-called gun show loophole, which is not a loophole. You know, the NRA is here at CPAC, and they've had a huge amount of data and information put out there. So I think the crime of the century, if you will, is all of these presidential orders. Now, all presidents do it, but only recently have they done it to establish law. In the past, I mean, presidential executive orders were designed to name buildings and bridges and and that kind of stuff. It was never designed to define law. And that's where the power has to overstep. And that's where we need to have the next president fix it. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll get that chance. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman from CPAC. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 